uh, it's good to be here. As a, as a, I'm, I'm, I want to just confess that I'm kind of a terrible church planting consultant. Um, I, uh, well, you know, we had a church that was doing the, sort of a similar thing that you're doing, you know, the, the fifth Sunday. And they did it every every month. They did it um, uh, on the second Sunday of every month. There was a brand new church, and I said, "You know, that's just never going to work. Uh, you're gonna, you, you won't be able to financially sustain the church if you don't take an offering." You know, that second Sunday, and you know, I made them change their budget, and I did all kinds of things, and, and uh, you know, they did that, and they never missed. And uh, that church is about 10 years old. They've done it every Sunday since then, and, or every second Sunday. And uh, just a tremendous culture of service uh, to the people around them. It's, uh, uh, so I want to just encourage you in that. Uh, God is uh, up to some things uh, in our day and age and how he empowers and emboldens his church. Um, I also remember preaching at this church this church, the first time I ever preached at it, uh, when I was in seminary, and uh, I remember back then, we didn't have uh, these kind of uh, microphones that had a big, long um, cord on it, and some of, I, who, who of you would have been a kid at the children's sermon uh, 30 years ago, right? You're at, yeah, okay. You gave the children's sermon. So I was giving the children's sermon, and I, I stepped on that cord, and the mic flipped out and just nearly hit people in the front seat. It was, I remember that 30 years ago. I was I was in seminary. I was a prod, prodigy, so I was 10, right? You know, uh, 30 years ago. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so um, I, 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 that was my first time ever again. Good to be here. Our scripture passage is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 11 through 31. Listen to God's word. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. 
Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were taught. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, we give you thanks for your holy word. We thank you for the message that you give to us in this scripture. And Lord, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit upon me and upon us as we consider your word, as we give ear to your heart and to what you are saying. Oh, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would enliven our hearts and minds. Help us to see things out of your glorious word today that will change our lives for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, Easter was on April Fool's Day this year. And uh, I was a little disappointed by that because I like to play at least one April Fool's joke on my wife, Diane, and other people. But I felt like the day was so reverent and so holy that uh, when she will testify, I did not. I refrained from April Fool's pranking all day on April Fool's Day. So I think I need a mulligan. Uh, for another day in the year, right? we, we can do that, right? April Fool's Day on Easter. And that's appropriate in a way, because Christianity is viewed as foolishness by the two largest groups in our society today. There are two groups in our society that look at what we preach, that look at the cross we preach, that look at the resurrection that we proclaim, and they say, 
foolish. Foolish. Those two groups are the very religious and the very irreligious. Come on. And as you see in our culture, if you just open up the, 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 the news feeds or Twitter or wherever you want to look, you see those two factions at war with one another in our culture. The very religious and the irreligious. Now, I want to talk about these two groups for a little bit and uh, see what this scripture teaches us as we think about the foolishness of the gospel. For the religious, the gospel is foolish because they say, how could God let sinners be forgiven scot-free? This notion of the cross wiping out our sins and, and this notion of radical grace makes no sense to them. Pleasing God for the religious is hard work that is done by the decent and upstanding citizens of the world. That's who God is pleased with. If you've got a good track record, if you have not made a lot of mistakes, if you are a decent citizen, you are in with the religious. The irreligious, on the other hand, think the gospel is foolishness. They say the idea of God forgiving sins and demanding justice is an outdated and unsophisticated notion left over from a religious era. People define their own morals and spiritual values after all. The idea of a cross that conquers death for the irreligious is a fantasy. Being true to yourself is what we need in this world so that we can all get along and stay out of each other's Do you recognize these narratives in the world around us? Now I want to make a claim today that Christians are neither religious nor irreligious. We are people of the cross. We are, as Paul puts it, gospel fools, living a cross-shaped life in a world that is confused about who God is and how to please him. We are fools for Christ. We're fools for the gospel. Our lives are shaped by a message that the rest of the world is not going to congratulate us for believing. Now, Let's qualify that a little bit. What if, what if we're gospel fools, I want us to talk about what gospel foolishness is not. This is what it's not. Being a gospel fool is not being naive. Matthew 10, 16 says, Jesus says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. We reject the idea that to be faithful to Christ, that someone has to be a bumpkin who has no understanding of the ways of the world. We reject that idea. We're not to be naive about what's going on around us. We reject the idea that Christians are most effective when they are un unaware of the world around them. There are some people that say, well, you know, just ignore all that stuff and just focus on Scripture, just focus on Christianity. 
We reject the idea that Christians are to cordon themselves off into a protected bubble where they can be sheltered from the world, right? Now, I heard someone say when I was introduced as being from Grand Rapids, um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm from Grand Rapids now, but I grew up in Mount Pleasant, um, which is, you know, you can think whatever you want to think about that, right? <laughs> um, but, uh, but the, I heard someone say Mecca, and I wanted to just correct them and say, no, Jerusalem, right? Yeah. But we lived in a little sub uh, suburb of Grand Rapids for a while. We live in Grand Rapids proper now, but, uh, and, and it was called the bubble, kind of the greater Hudsonville, Jenison area, right? And... Uh, there were people, it's not a bubble, in fact, statistically, it is more irreligious than the rest of the country, a little bit. It is less churched than other places in the world, which is interesting. It's just that zoning laws put all the churches on one street, so they think that there's a whole bunch of, they think there's a, more churches than other places. But there is sort of a cultural milieu, a bubble that people want to create. You need to live here. You need to move here. If you ever move away from here, you need to move back here. And we need to create our own schools, and we need to create our own clubs, and we need to create our own radio stations. We need to create our own colleges. We need to do all these things so that we will be unstained by the world. Well, that's just naive. It's not going to work. Because we are not a people who are intended to be protected from the world. We are a people who are sent out into the world in a movement that is designed to take over the world. And so naivete is not an option, even if we're foolish for the gospel. Also, being foolish for Christ is not rejecting human intellect or scientific inquiry. It's not that. It's not a sort of anti-intellectualism. Proverbs 18.15 says, An intelligent mind acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. We reject the idea that Christianity is anti-intellectual, and that the use of the mind is somehow wrong or unfaithful to God. That somehow you have to check your brain at the door before you come into the church. That there's some sort of separation between what we do out in the world where we're thinking and what we do here in the church where we're, I don't know. Of course we're thinking. We have the mind of Christ. We reject the notion that the Bible and science are in fundamental conflict. In fact, the foundations of natural science were laid by Christians. We believe that intelligent and curious human beings can and do believe that there are many things that our eyes cannot see and that our measurements that, that cannot comprehend. And so there's no conflict between being a person of Christian faith and being a scientist or being a philosopher or being a psychologist or being an intellectual of any kind. Don't Accept that. We are not foolish in those ways. 
What is gospel foolishness, according to our passage? Well, first of all, it is a firm rejection of the project of self-salvation. If you're a fool for the gospel, you reject the idea that you can save yourself by your actions. Let's start at verse 22. It says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We have to firmly reject the idea that we can save ourselves. This is the idea of the religion. This was the idea of the Jew. The moral math of the religious that he was talking about in this passage was one eye for one eye equals justice. That's what you're going for. You're going for fairness and equity in everything. Righteousness is achieved by punishing disobedience and avoiding disobedience at all costs. That's the moral math of religion, of the self-salvation project. A couple of months ago, I was on a plane from Budapest to Warsaw, and, uh, and the plane had about a hundred, it was a small plane, uh, uh, like a 737, so what in that seat? A couple hundred people. About half of the people, about a hundred people, I would say, that were boarding the plane were Hasidic Jews. They were in the uniform, right? You know, with the hat, and the long coat, black, white shirt, uh, the ringlets coming down from a long beard, about a hundred of them. And, uh, it was interesting. I was wearing a hat that had a slogan on it, and, and uh, one of the one of the fellas came up to me and he said, "Polska or Magia? Polish or Hungarian?" He used to be, right? And I said, "Oh, I'm from the U.S." And he says, "Oh, I'm from Brooklyn." Yeah. <laughs> In fact, all of them were from Brooklyn. They had all flown together to Budapest to honor the graves of their ancestors who had died in the Shoah, died in the Holocaust. And for some, it was their last trip. People from 18 to 85 were on this, were on this little tour. But the interesting thing, and what I want to say about this, is the ringlets. Uh, you know, have, you, have you seen this? Anybody seen this? The, the ringlets that go down from the beard. And the reason that the Hasidim do not cut off the ringlets is because in Leviticus 17, it says you should not cut off the corners of your beard. I don't know why it says that, but Israel apparently was not supposed to cut off the corner of their beard in the Old Covenant. And they are so afraid of cutting into their beard that they leave the hair so that they would never even get close to cutting the beard. That's what's called putting a hedge around the law. And that's what Jesus was addressing when he, when, he, when he opposed the teachers of the law, people that had not only taken Leviticus, but they'd added hundreds of other laws, hundreds of other 
prescriptions, legalisms to the law. As Christians, we utterly, utterly reject this project. The law of Moses could only point out our hopelessness under the moral system. We can't avoid every kind of disobedience, and therefore we are condemned under the law. The law cannot save us. Religion cannot save us. The rules cannot save us. Equity cannot save us. Justice cannot save us. And so when we say that we're fools for Christ, we're going to be misunderstood even by people sort of in our own camp because they believe that that project is viable. Does that make sense? It's also to be a fool for Christ. It involves a firm rejection of worldly sophistication. Let's go to verse 18 through 20. It says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Paul is saying here, we're not fools at all. We must firmly reject the seeming sophistication of the non-Christian ethos. And the moral math of the irreligious is that righteousness is achieved by knowing the moral ideal and replicating that ideal within yourself for yourself. This shows up in our day in all kinds of places. Have you uh, heard of the movie Eat, Pray, Love. Anybody? Or the book by Elizabeth Gilbert? Anybody? No? Most of you living under a rock. <laughs> Has anybody heard of this? I mean, this will mean, yes, I've heard of it. Yeah, okay, good, good. Yeah, a lot of people. Good. <laughs> I was thinking you people were doing the bubble. <laughs> But it's the story of Elizabeth Gilbert divorcing her husband and going to India, Italy, India, and Indonesia to eat in Italy, to pray in India, and to love in Indonesia. And she says that she heard from God that this is what she should do. And there's a telling part of the book when she says this line. I heard God within me as me. That's the message of the wisdom of this age. And see how it doesn't hold up, it doesn't hold water. I heard God within me as me. Be true to yourself. You are the master of your own destiny. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. What I think is right is right for me. And what you think is right is right for you. These things are so commonly spoken in our world today that they seem like the truth. They seem like wisdom. 
rejecting them seems foolish. In fact, you're accused of being hyper-religious and bigoted if you don't accept these aphorisms of our society. But as people who want to be true to the cross of Christ, we must reject them and become fools for Christ. See, we're caught in the middle. We're fools to the religious. Well, what do you mean? You don't have to do anything to be saved. What kind of a lazy man's religion is that? And then we are fools to the rest of the world. What do you mean there's, there's some sort of revealed truth that we all must align with? And this is where we have to have a deep commitment to the wisdom of the cross. Verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Gospel foolishness is a deep inter inner commitment, a deep internal commitment to the wisdom of the cross. The moral math of the Christian goes like this. Righteousness cannot be achieved by any human effort that can only be injected into our lives by the one who fulfills all moral standards, deficits, and ideals. Now, who could do this? Who could bring us righteousness that is not our own? Who could bring us objective righteousness that, con that, that conforms with the absolute moral clarity of God himself. Only one. Only one. A person who could die to satisfy all the requirements of justice and who could rise again so that he could put his spirit within him. How many of you have heard of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe from the Chronicles of Narnia series? And the scene that I want, to, want us to think about is Aslan has been killed on the stone table in place of Edmund, who traded him to the Ice Queen for Turkish Delight. Now, if you've ever had Turkish Delight, there's a temptation. <laughs> but Aslan volunteered to be killed in place of his traitor. And then he came back from the dead. And this puzzle, this absolutely confounded the queen. How is this possible? And C.S. Lewis explains it this way. He said, it means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there was a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked back a little further into the stillness and the darkness before time died, she would have read a very different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery, was killed in a traitor's stead. The table would crack, and death itself would start working backwards. 
The cross seems like foolishness to those who only look at the surface of things, but it is the deep magic, the deep wisdom of God that through Jesus and his sacrifice, sin and death itself start to become undone. They start to become untrue. Death starts to work backwards. The cross-shaped life is a life where we stop trying to add things to our life to make them make sense. Houses and lands and experiences and virtues and achievements and people because our lives are emptied out so that Christ can live his life through us. This is the deep wisdom. It seems foolish to the world. We give in order to get. We give up in order to win. We suffer in order to have power. We serve in order to lead. We love when hated. We relax when oppressed. It's a third way. In between the harshness of religion and the foolishness of irreligion. Jim Elliott, who lost his life in order to bring the gospel to an unreached tribe in South America, put it this way. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Will you join me? in a little foolishness? Will you join me in this foolishness that is wiser than the wisdom of the world? Will you give up on the divisions that the religious and the religious, irreligious cause in the body of Christ and in our society? Will you give your life to him today and let him live his life through you more and more? Will you take up your cross and lift it high as a band a badge that we have been redeemed by the one who died for us and is now alive again. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. Lord, we give ourselves to you. Lord, we want to live in this third way. We want to give up trying to earn our own salvation, earn our own meaning, make up our own morals, develop our own way. And we want to follow your way. It is a way that's so generous, so filled with light, so filled with so filled with power. And yet it's narrow because it must go through the cross and the empty tomb. Lord, if there's anyone here that needs to know you, to, to turn away from religiosity or to turn away from rejecting you as foolish, we pray that they'd be able to do that soon, even now. Oh, Lord, we live in your hope. We trust in your truth. 
We long for your righteousness to live in us.